Good morning, church. Glad to be with you. Always considered it a joy to preach God's word to you. If you will, please keep your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 as we look to walk through that text in just a moment. I'd like to start this morning, though, by talking to you about a diary from a man who lived in America in the 18th century. Concerning the fathers of the modern missionary movement, it has often been said that they had two books in hand whenever they left their homeland for the foreign mission field. One of those books obviously being the scriptures, the Holy Bible, but the other one being David Brainerd's diary or journal. For men like William Carey, the pioneer of Protestant missions, Brainerd's diary helped to fuel the fire for global mission activity because Brainerd had given the best of his young life to making the gospel known among Native Americans. When reading his diary, you get a sense of the despair and discouragement that followed him for so long because Brainerd consistently preached the gospel and often it resulted in nothing. No converts, no new believers. I'd like to read for you an entry from his diary written on April 10th, 1742, mind you, from the 23-year-old David Brainerd. He writes, I'm so low and feel so little of the sensible presence of God that I hardly know what to call faith and am made to possess the sins of my youth and the dreadful sin of my nature. I am all sin. I cannot think nor act, but every motion is sin. I feel some faint hopes that God will, of his infinite mercy, return again with showers of converting grace to poor gospel-abusing sinners. My hopes of being employed in the cause of God, which of late have been almost extinct, seem not a little revived. Oh, that all my late distresses and awful apprehensions might prove but Christ's school to make me fit for greater service. And Paul writes in the first verse of our text for this morning, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart, or as the CSB puts it, we do not give up. Brainerd needed Paul's words. I know that I need them, and maybe you need them as well. I'd like to refer to another diary as well this morning, my own. It's a diary I kept when I was in college and served as a midterm missionary with the IMB in East Asia. Unlike Brainerd's journal, I can almost assure you that no one will be pouring over my sloppy writing anytime in the near future. For example, here's an entry of mine from July 25th, 2012. Went to the Institute of Technology to share the gospel Met a student and shared with him and gave him a track with my phone number. He understood English, but I'm not sure how much. Chinese name, can't remember. Pong Ling, something like that. <laughs> I obviously didn't have the rhetoric that Brainerd wrote with, but what I did have, much like him, was despair and discouragement because I, too, was seeking to make the gospel known day after day to a people who desperately needed it, and often it resulted in nothing. Here's what I wrote in my journal on September 11, 2012, fairly representative of a typical day in our city. Went to the Institute of Technology again, tried to share with three students, but they didn't really want to talk to us. Gave them tracks as they left. Friends and I tried with two others, said they didn't want to talk about it. Met with another group of 10 students, mentioned Jesus, and people started leaving except for two. Shared with three more, they listened but rejected Christ. But still, somehow, Paul's words ring true, and how desperately I needed them and still do. Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not 
lose heart. Believers, whether you realize it or not, and my hope is that you do, you too are a minister of the gospel. You are to live sin. You have received mercy from God, Paul says, and this is our very motivation for taking mercy to other people. You're an ambassador for Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 5, and you need to feed on Paul's words in our passage for this morning. Now, 2 Corinthians 4.1 is not the only time in the Bible that Paul mentions he does not lose heart, that he does not give up. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, later in this chapter, he writes, We do not lose heart. Though our inner self is wasting away, or though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. He communicates in 2 Corinthians 5.6 that we are always of good courage. In Philippians 4.13, Paul writes about the secret of his contentment, that he is okay with both the good and bad of this life because he can do all things through Christ who gives him strength. And what's astonishing is that this comes from a man who suffered immensely in his life. At the time of Paul's conversion even, when he comes to know Christ, Jesus says in Acts 9.16, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And suffer he did. In 1 Corinthians 15.32, Paul says that he fought with beasts at Ephesus. In the verses right after our text, Paul writes of being perplexed, persecuted, and struck down, and yet he says he is not driven to despair, not forsaken, not destroyed. As we already mentioned, he does not lose heart. He does not give up. Paul mentions two chapters later that he has been commended in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. Paul even boasts of his hardships toward the end of 2 Corinthians. In chapter 11, he writes about he faced imprisonments, countless beatings, He was often near death. Five times he received 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once stoned, three times shipwrecked, a night and a day adrift at sea. He faced danger from rivers and robbers and his own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city and danger in the wilderness. He says, I faced danger at sea and danger from false brothers. Many sleepless nights of hardship, many nights of hunger and thirst, many nights of restlessness and cold conditions, and last but likely one of the greatest of all, as any minister could attest, the daily pressure of his anxiety for all the churches. Paul had a lifetime enrollment in the school of suffering, but think about how much he learned of his God while in that school, that he can say something like, we still do not lose heart. We still don't give up. At this point in his letter, 2 Corinthians, Paul begins to speak of one suffering that he likely experienced most often, even in the midst of these previous sufferings mentioned, that is, rejection of the gospel. Some believed his gospel, but many did not. And I want to make clear this morning that the type of suffering we're talking about is not every type of suffering. I know that with the many of you in this room that there are numerous things you're facing right now. Hurt from loss, fear of the unexpected or unknown, physical illnesses, depression. It could be anguish for lost family and friends, not to mention the state of civil unrest in our country and around the world and things like these. So again, the suffering I want us to think about and not losing heart over is solely the suffering that we face when we share the gospel with unbelievers, yet they reject it time and time again. 
This is the dilemma that we are giving our time to this morning. That the, the gospel for us, right, as a church is such a glorious story. For the sake of sinful people, Jesus leaves his throne in heaven, comes to earth in the form of man, lives a perfect life, follows God's law completely. He faces utter humiliation and dying the death that you and I deserved on the cross and gloriously resurrects three days later. He ascends to the Father where he currently rules and reigns over us. What a glorious story this is. And yet, people can laugh in our faces metaphorically and sometimes literally for the mere fact that we believe in the story and want them to believe in the story as well. This rejection of the gospel surely was a deep suffering for Paul. I know it's likely a deep suffering for many of us, even to the extent that maybe we're not saying that we're not losing heart or not giving up, but that we have lost heart and that we have given up. Consider Paul's words in Romans 9, 3, when he speaks of his fellow Jews who rejected the gospel. He says that I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul doesn't give up. He doesn't lose heart. He wishes instead that his brothers might gain heaven, even if it meant that he would gain hell. If you have ever shared the gospel to any extent, then you have faced this same rejection. You have had to deal with this same kind of suffering. Sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes it's even nice. Sometimes it's passionate. Sometimes it's sad. But every time, if we truly believe the words of the gospel, it brings us despair. Every time we can agree, it is hard to not lose heart when someone rejects the very words that we know afford them eternal life. It's difficult to not feel offended. It's hard to not be discouraged. So as we read this text, Paul has us from the very start asking the question, how can we not lose heart? How can we not give up? This is the great dilemma we're presented with, yet we also get a great solution. In our text, Paul communicates the reason for his boldness and his courage in the midst of such a difficult gospel ministry. Look with me again at, at verse 1 here. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart or we do not give up. In the preceding chapter, Paul made the substance of his ministry clear. What is, what is Paul's ministry of the gospel? He says he wants others to turn to the Lord, so he preaches the Lord of the Spirit, because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. His ministry, to summarize it, is one of the new covenant that was completed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ on the cross. So Paul is saying here that he has the ministry of Christ, this ministry of the gospel, by the mercy of God. He's received mercy, so he's dishing out mercy to others. And in this ministry of mercy, Paul confirms, I do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. And not only does he not lose heart, but he also makes very clear that he by no means has ever sought to reduce the gospel of Christ, for it is the very substance of his ministry. So he says in verse 2, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways, secret, shameful ways. What, what are these disgraceful, underhanded ways? He elaborates, we refuse to practice cunning. He says, we're not going to act deceitfully. You see, cunning is exactly what the serpent does to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. He, being crafty, is cunning enough to lead them to believe something that is not true. 
This is directly against what Paul testifies of later in the verse when he says instead that he preaches the open statement or display of the truth. In other words, Paul's teaching is not a false teaching. He doesn't make something up. He doesn't seek to scratch itching ears, as he would put it in a letter to Timothy. He doesn't look to do whatever works to have masses of people flock to him. He doesn't try to mix the gospel of Christ with something else. He doesn't water down or reduce the gospel to something that it is not for the sake of just getting more people to follow him. As well, Paul makes it clear, he does not tamper or distort God's word. He doesn't tamper with what God has given him. This word tamper is the same word that would have been used in reference to wine merchants who diluted their wines with water. In essence, then, what Paul is telling us is that he does not water down the gospel of Christ. He does not dilute the truth of God's word. He doesn't attempt to make it more palatable or to further it for the masses. Tampering with wine in that day could have led to more wine, but it would not lead to more true wine. And so in the same way, even though diluting the gospel might lead to more converts, it will not lead to more true converts. So Paul doesn't care about what will work or what will make people believe his message, for Paul knows they must believe in the gospel if they are to be saved. And that is why Paul makes it his ambition to preach Christ and Christ crucified. That is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9.16, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. That is why Paul says at the end of verse 2 here that his ministry of the gospel is this, By the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And so we come back to our main question, our main dilemma. How does Paul not lose heart when the ministry of the gospel is such a difficult ministry? In our own ministry of the gospel, how can we be those who do not lose heart? We are, we are left to wonder at the end of verse 2, Paul, what is your secret? Please tell us. Paul persevered in gospel ministry because he held on to a central Christian truth. And it is to that truth we want to devote the rest of our time. Why should we not lose heart in the midst of gospel ministry? Paul's answer to the dilemma is twofold. We find the first reason in verses 3 through 4. We do not lose heart because, one, we have no control over those who don't believe. We have no control over those who don't believe. Paul writes in verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. Now Paul seems to be addressing more so why he doesn't lose heart. He talks about the reason he doesn't practice cunning. He talks about why he handles the word and the message of God rightly. Why he doesn't tamper with God's truth. It's because if the gospel is veiled, if the gospel is not understood or believed in, then it is only veiled to those who are perishing. Paul mentions here the real reason that many do not believe the gospel he preaches. It's the reason many people in your lives have not believed the gospel you preach. Those who are perishing, those who are lost, don't understand the beauty of the gospel message. It's foolishness to them. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 2.14 when he says that the natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because 
They are spiritually discerned. So believers, don't be fooled. The lost people that you preach the gospel to have yet to understand the scandal that is Jesus Christ, the perfect and sinless God-man, dying in their place for their salvation and raising victoriously from the dead. And the reason for their misunderstanding is not you. If you are preaching the one true gospel, the reason they're not believing is not because of you or your message. And this is one of the reasons Paul could effectively say, we do not lose heart. When someone rejects the gospel, it's not because of me, it's because they don't get the gospel. When we think back to our own testimonies of salvation, surely we can see this. When I think back to when I put my own faith in Christ for the first time, I can see this because for years I had heard the gospel message and for years I had continually rejected it. But for some reason, when I was 13 years old, I heard the gospel preached yet again, the same gospel, mind you, and lo and behold, I understood it. I saw the glory of Christ in the midst of my sinfulness for the first time, and I could do nothing but fall at the feet of God. I could do nothing but place my faith in Christ and repent of my sin that had put him on the cross in the first place. And this is where I must remind myself daily that I didn't believe because I got smarter at the age of 13. If anything, I was probably getting dumber in that season of life. So there's, there's no pat on the back for me or pat on the back for anyone who preached the gospel to me. I owe everything to God for helping me to see the truth of the gospel message. Yet we forget this. We, we forget to take our own testimonies and see how that applies to our evangelistic efforts. We know that we don't pat ourselves or anyone else on the back for the fact that we are saved, yet somehow we put the burden of evangelism on our shoulders to think that we are in control over those who do and do not believe. Many had rejected the gospel Paul preached, but Paul in no way believed that it was due to gospel content that was defective or untrue. The gospel was the true and good message given to him to preach. In his commentary, Charles Hodge puts it this way. The sun does not cease to be the sun, although the blind do not see it. And Paul is not discouraged because he can no more make an unbeliever see the Son of God than he can make a blind man see the sun. Paul elaborates further in verse 4 when he writes, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this world, or as other translations like the CSB put it, the God of this age is Satan himself. And Paul doesn't use this terminology of God because he believes that Satan is divine or that he is like God, but rather he uses it because Satan has a dominion, this side of Christ's second coming, and in that dominion, Satan has a ministry of blindness. Satan looks to darken the minds of men so that the light of the gospel cannot shine through. In 2 Timothy 2.26, Paul calls this the snare of the devil. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 13 when he says that Satan, the evil one, often snatches the seed of the word before it can be truly understood. I cannot pretend to have my head wrapped around all that this difficult doctrine entails. To have my head wrapped around the spiritual warfare that is at effect whenever we are making the gospel of Christ known. It is difficult to stomach the fact that some do not believe and might never believe because they are blinded to the beauty and the glory of the gospel. It reminds me of the story of Pharaoh. 
as Moses is told time and time again to command Pharaoh, let God's people go. And the guarantee up front was what? That Pharaoh would over and over again never listen, that his heart would be hardened. The text often describing it as God himself doing that hardening. This type of hardening is spoken of elsewhere in Scripture, namely Romans 9, where Paul says in verse 18 that God hardens whomever he wills. If this is a doctrine that you struggle with, I I cannot promise to solve all of your problems with it this morning. But let me remind you of some of Paul's words in Romans chapter 11 as he's trying to wrap up this whole thing. He's led to worship God because he can't understand all of God's ways. God is God, after all. And so, in Romans eleven thirty three through 36, he writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Guys, the true marvel is this, that anyone gets to believe, that anyone ever has the veil lifted, especially when we consider that God would be perfectly just in leaving us in our blindness that is due to both Satan and our sinful flesh. What's wonderful is the fact that in the midst of a world full of blindness, some do believe, this church being a testimony to that very fact. And the second reason Paul doesn't lose heart is exactly that. Yes, we certainly have no control over those who do believe, and odd as it may seem, the opposite truth is just as comforting and encouraging. We do not lose heart because, second, we have no control over those who do believe. We have no control over those who do believe. Jump with me to verse 6. We'll come back to verse 5 before we close. Paul writes this, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Remember the difficulty that verses 3 through 4 present. Many do not believe the gospel. In fact, at some point, all of God's people did not believe the gospel. All of us at some point chose not to worship Jesus as Lord and Savior. And this refusal of the gospel was due to blindness. And that blindness is due to the God of this age, Satan, blinding the minds of unbelievers. And strange as it may seem, this knowledge leads Paul to not lose heart because he understands that when he preaches the gospel and someone chooses not to believe in it, it's not because of him. He is not at fault. And likewise, Paul knows that when someone does believe, it's not because of him. It's because of God's ability to make the gospel shine in the darkest of places. Darkness, according to verse 4, is attributed to the God of this world who blinds the minds of unbelievers. Verse 6, though, gives the remedy to that. God, that is the true God, the creator and giver of light as opposed to the false God, is able to and illuminates the inner lives of those who were previously blinded by Satan. And this, my friends, is why the grace we sing of is truly an amazing grace. Paul preaches this one gospel. At times it's not believed in. At times it is. But no matter the response, Paul knows it's not because of him. The language he uses here communicates something significant about God. Paul makes the claim here that the same God who created light in the midst of darkness at the beginning of creation beams supernatural light into his heart and in the hearts of everyone 
who would ever believe. When we read the early chapters of Genesis, we see darkness brooding over chaos until what? God said, let there be light. And so spiritual darkness broods over the minds of men and women until God shines the light of the gospel in their hearts and says, let there be light. Let there be faith. Let there be salvation. And that glorious light reveals to blind, sinful people who Jesus is, the majestic Son of God. Church, how beautiful is conversion? Quite beautiful indeed that Paul is able to not lose heart. What what is his secret? What is the solution? It's simple. Paul persevered in his gospel ministry because he knew God was sovereign over man's salvation. Likewise, we should not lose heart in our gospel ministry because we too know God is sovereign over man's salvation. With various teams of the International Mission Board, I've gotten to share the gospel or be on teams that share the gospel numerous times now. And through that, we've been able to share Christ with literally thousands of people. One of my goals as a pastor of this church is to have more of our members become a part of these teams that are seeking to share the gospel to the ends of the earth. But know this, that if God calls you to that work, if you are sent, commissioned by this church for that work, most of the time you will face constant rejection. But every so often, someone believes And it's the most glorious thing that God would use our preaching of the gospel to save sinners. If God's calling you to be a missionary, then we want to know this text most certainly applies to the life that God might lead you to. However, this text is also for every believer here this morning. We are all called to make the gospel known to our family, our friends, neighbors, coworkers, strangers, and more. So how do we wrap this up? Let's remind ourselves that Paul made the following his resolve in verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Because he knew that God was sovereign over salvation, Paul did not lose heart. And because Paul knew God was sovereign over man's salvation, his method was simple and clear. Share the gospel and show the gospel. Share the gospel and show the gospel. Unlike others, Paul says that it was never his ambition to preach himself. It was never his ambition to make much of himself. It was never his ambition to simply make the gospel more palatable. Rather, he says his ambition in life and ministry is to preach Jesus Christ as Lord, to preach the gospel. It is the gospel that is the power of salvation for man, as he would say in Romans 1, 16. And rather than proclaiming himself, Paul says that he instead makes himself a servant for the sake of Christ, who served us, namely through his own death and resurrection. Paul thus is a servant of these Corinthians, and in that, he beautifully shows the gospel while sharing it as well. His character and his life, his conduct are in step with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if people are offended, It's not because Paul is a jerk. It's because the gospel is offensive and folly to those who do not know the Lord. And this should be an example for your own life, that you are called to proclaim the gospel, yes, but in gentleness, to share the truth and love winsomely, 
sharing your life with people and letting them see the gospel through the way that you live so that the gospel you share is that much more compelling to them. So what does this mean for you, believer? In the midst of constant rejection, as you seek to make the gospel known, you do not have to lose heart. There is a place of comfort, courage, and contentment. And it is understanding that you work for a God who is sovereign over all. Even the God of this age, Satan, is held captive by the will of God, and he knows that God's plan will be fulfilled to the very end. God's promise will endure. God's promise cannot be thwarted. And so the truth of the matter is, if you are faithfully ministering the gospel, there is no way you can fail. Your success is not measured by visible results. Your success is not measured by the number of people who believe. And likewise, your failure is not measured by the number of people who don't. You can rest in the freedom that comes when one sees and savors that wonderful message that salvation belongs to the Lord. But please remember this as well. This truth that you're not in control over others' salvation should not lead you to apathy. You shouldn't hear this truth that you're not in control over those who believe and those who don't, so why do anything? Rather, it should be a comfort to you to know that when you carry God's word out, it cannot be in vain. He is going to do with your work what he wills. And if you happen upon our church this morning and you're an unbeliever, my prayer for you is very simple. My call to you is simple. It's not to start sharing the gospel with this understanding that you're not in control. It's for you yourself to believe the gospel. My prayer for you is that God would lift the veil from your eyes, remove your spiritual blindness, and help you understand and believe the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. If that is the case for you, then my call for you, the pastor's call for you, and this church's call for you is quite simple, though it's difficult to endure. Confess your sin. Ask for forgiveness, put your faith in God, believe in the gospel, and commit your life to live for him. Let's pray together.